live from the Poly Market Studio in LA. It's the Young Turks. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Woo! It's up! Ice cream. Welcome to TYT, I'm your host, Anna Kasparian, and we have a fantastic show ahead for you all today. We are gonna get into some updates on the situation in the Middle East, the possibility of a yet expanding Middle East war. So we'll give you all of the updates, including some statements coming from the Biden administration in regard to how they plan to retaliate against the Iran-backed militant group that carried out a drone strike that killed three US service members in Jordan. So we'll get to that. Later in the show, we'll also give you some updates out of a Senate hearing today featuring tech CEOs like Mark Zuckerberg, who at one point was pressured into apologizing to families who have been victimized by child abuse on social media platforms. A lot of details to get into in regard to that story and possible legislation that could rein in tech companies and what kind of material they expose young kids to. We're also gonna have an interview with a presidential candidate. You might have heard of him, I don't know, a little known candidate with an unlikely presidential bid. Cenk Uger will be joining us to give us an update on his run in the Democratic primary. But before we get to all of that, just want to encourage you all to help support the show. You can do it totally free by liking and sharing this stream if you're watching us on YouTube. You can also do it just a little bit of money just a little bit of money every month by becoming a member. You can go to tyt.com slash join to become a member or you can click that join button if you're watching us on YouTube. Members help to keep us independent of corporate influence and helps to also keep us afloat during a pretty awful you know, time in digital media, especially a lot of people getting laid off, a lot of companies going under. And if it weren't for you all, we wouldn't be able to do what we do. We wouldn't be able to speak as freely as we do. And we always appreciate that you guys give us the platform that we are so privileged to have. But with all of that said, let's start off with the updates on the United States basically getting goaded into a potential war with Iran. It didn't start a world war. If we go after everyone is saying and what what Biden is, I don't want a world war. I don't want to make a big war. He's such a wuss on the world stage. He signals everything that he's afraid of. 
Isn't it always wonderful to hear these elite media figures sitting in their fancy studios talk about how, oh, it's not a big deal. So who cares? Who cares if we're risking a potential World War III? Biden is such a wuss for not engaging in a hot war with Iran. That is what this segment on Fox News is about. Like the most irresponsible brain dead commentary that honestly is reminiscent of what we heard in the lead up to the United States launching a preemptive war in Iraq in 2003. I mean, absolute dribble, absolute garbage, absolute pretend strongman BS. Now, let's understand why <laughs> and how a war with Iran would, why it would be a disaster and how a war with Iran would play out for the United States. That's what I wanna talk about in this segment. But first, let's also discuss what led to this commentary on Fox News to begin with. So over the weekend, as we've reported on this show before, you have a, an Iran-backed militant group carry out a drone strike against US troops who were based in a pretty secretive base in Jordan. As a result, three of our US service members died. About 40 of them were also injured as a result of that drone strike. So understandably, the United States is upset about this. And the Biden administration has already made clear that they plan to retaliate. But in doing so, the Biden administration also made clear that they do not want to engage in a hot war with Iran. They don't want World War III. Which is a good thing, that's something that should be applauded. They plan to retaliate, but they wanna do so in a way that doesn't drag the United States and more of our service members in a hot war with a country that has a military capability that we really shouldn't be underestimating. Not only would that destabilize the region, it would certainly use up quite a bit of our resources, it would jeopardize the lives of US soldiers, and it would just be a complete and utter mess. No one wants this. Except for apparently Janine Pirro, who's sitting comfortably in her new studio, pretending as if she has half a brain to comment on these topics to begin with. Now, the Iran-backed militant group called Kataib Hezbollah has taken responsibility for the drone strike that killed three US service members. While they are an Iranian proxy, there is absolutely no indication that Iran ordered Kataib Hezbollah to carry out the drone strike. And I think it's really important to keep that in mind. Iran does provide weaponry to their proxy groups, these Iran-backed militant groups. And Kataib Hezbollah happens to be one of them. That doesn't mean that Iran is calling the shots and ordering these attacks to happen in the first place. They might in some cases, but there needs to be evidence of that before the United States decides to you know, engage in a hot war with Iran. Now, with that said, Kataib Hezbollah also tried to distance Iran from their almost daily attacks in Iraq and Syria since October 17th, saying they have carried out the attacks at their own will and without any interference from others. On the contrary, our brothers in the Axis, especially in the Islamic Republic, do not know how we work jihad. And they often object to the pressure and escalation against the American occupation forces in Iraq and Syria, the group added in the statement. Now let's talk a little bit about President Joe Biden's response to the attack on our service members in Jordan. Now Biden has decided that he will respond to Kataib Hezbollah to their attack. It, it probably will not be a one-off, it won't be a you know one airstrike type situation according to administration officials and Pentagon officials. And the Pentagon has also signaled that it is preparing to retaliate. Let's watch. I don't think we could be any more clear. 
that we have called on the Iranian proxy groups to stop their attacks. Uh, they have not. And so we will respond in a time and manner of our choosing. President Biden blames Iran for arming the radical militants who carried out the deadly attack. He told reporters yesterday he's already decided how the U.S. will respond, adding the White House wants to avoid a broader war in the Middle East. ABC's Martha Raddatz reports a strike inside Iran is less likely than a strike in other regional countries where militants are operating. And that is exactly what set Janine Pirro off. That's what led to Janine Pirro referring to Joe Biden as a wuss. You know, wanting to be measured in the response to ensure that this doesn't lead to a an expanded regional war, one in which the United States is very much enmeshed in. Like she's she's against that. She she wants to heat things up even more. She wants a broader regional war. She wants the United States to essentially again risk the lives of our service members to engage in a war that would really have no end in sight. Again, considering the military capability of Iran. Their military is far larger than the military in Iraq. And just think about what a disaster Iraq was. Now, unfortunately, Pirro had other things to say. So let's go to the next clip. There's no administration has gone into Iran, okay? Apparently, Jimmy Carter tried it, and that was a disaster with the with the hostages. But you know, if we just go after the Houthis and this one and that, it's not going to make a damn bit of difference. The truth is that we either have to drop bridges or go after their munitions or send some cruise missiles in there. I don't know what the answer is, but he may have to get permission from Congress on this, and that's where Congress is going to start negotiating for. Ukraine and for Israel. But the bottom line is, um, you know, when Trump killed Soleimani, that was the end of it. They didn't respond. They knew Trump was serious. There were two service members who were hit by a missile attack and died. It was a missile attack, but it didn't start a world war. I mean, I don't know what the response should be. Maybe we send some cruise missiles. Maybe we send some cruise missiles. Like, Homegirl doesn't even know how Iran retaliated against the United States following the assassination of Qasem Soleimani. But she feels the need to opine on how Biden is a wussy for refusing to, again, inflame the situation further by doing a strike on Iranian soil, which would be a complete and utter disaster. I don't know, maybe we use some cruise missiles or something. She's so embarrassing. And by the way, the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, the general, the head of the Iranian military at the time, led to other innocent people getting killed because Iran increased its air defenses in response to that assassination. They wanted to protect their airspace, they wanted to take a more defensive approach. And as a result, after a US drone strike killed a top general in 2020, Iranian air defenses mistakenly shot down a Ukrainian passenger plane, killing all 176 people on board. So it compounded the situation. Trump comes in, he rips up the Iran nuclear deal, which gave the international community, certainly Western powers, oversight capacity in Iran to ensure that they're no longer developing nuclear weapons or there's no indication that they're developing nuclear weapons. What do you think happens when the President of the United States reneges on that deal, rips up the Iran nuclear deal? It 
provides a pathway for Iran to develop nuclear weapons. How exactly did that lead to peace? So it starts with that, essentially deteriorating our relations with Iran. And then of course, there are the sanctions, which makes matters even worse. And now you fast forward to what we're experiencing today, where you have Iran and Arab countries in the in the region absolutely furious over what is happening to the Palestinians in Gaza. These Iran backed militant groups have been stepping up their attacks against the United States for supporting Israel in its war on Gaza. And rather than let's you know, war should really be the last option. I mean, I feel like reasonable people should save that as the final option. Okay, before it even got to this point, there was another option that the Biden administration could have tried out. It might not have worked, right? All of these Iran-backed militant groups might be lying. All of these Arab countries might be lying. Iran might be lying. Maybe they don't care about the Palestinians at all. And they're just using this war as an excuse to step up their attacks against the United States. That could be possible. But if they keep saying over and over again that the attacks are motivated by the fact that the United States continues to support Israel regardless of what Israel is doing to Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. Can we maybe try a diplomatic approach? Maybe pressure Israel to engage in targeted attacks instead of what they've been doing for several months now? I mean, if not to calm tensions in the Middle East, maybe for human rights to ensure that civilians, including women and children aren't getting slaughtered by the aerial bombardments and the military operations being carried out by the IDF in the Gaza Strip. Can we try that first? But no, we can't try that first. Instead, the US is gonna continue supporting what Israel is doing. It will continue to inflame various Arab countries and yes, Iran backed militant groups. And I don't know where this ends. I'm happy to see that Biden is a little more measured than what the naysayers are saying. I'm glad that he's more measured than what Senator Lindsey Graham or what Senator John Cornyn was advocating for earlier this week. They want a hot war with Iran. But where does this end? Because the Iran-backed militant groups are very likely gonna continue striking. They're gonna continue attacking the United States in that region if this war in Gaza continues going the way it's been going. That's just the fact of the matter, that is what's been happening. So we have other options. But instead, it just keeps escalating, 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 escalating. So um, here's a broader view of what's been going on in that region. So any additional American strikes could further inflame a region already roiled by Israel's ongoing war on Hamas in the Gaza Strip. Violence has erupted across the Middle East with uh, Iran striking targets in Iraq, Pakistan and Syria. And the United States carrying out airstrikes targeting Yemen's Houthi rebels over their attacks uh, on shipping in the Red Sea. Some observers fear a new round of strikes targeting Iran could tip the region into a wider war. And they're right to be concerned about that. But again, so far it appears that the Biden administration hasn't lost its head and they wanna be measured in how they retaliate against what Kataib Hezbollah did. Now, warnings first came from Amir Saeed Irivani, um, Iran's ambassador to the United Nations in New York. Uh, basically, if there is an attack by the United States on Iranian soil, there will be consequences. Uh, the Islamic Republic would decisively respond to any attack on the country, its interests and nationals under any pretext, Iran's ambassador to the United Nations said. He described any possible Iranian retaliation 
as a strong response without elaborating. But Iran's government has also taken note of the US threats and of retaliation against it. And even though that was some strong language there, I will admit that. They also make clear, this is General Hossein Salami. Yes, his last name is Salami, which makes it a little bit harder to take the statement seriously. I gotta be honest, but nonetheless, General Hossein Salami, who's the Revolutionary Guard commander says, we are not after war, but we have no fear of war. So let's find a way to tone things down. We don't want a broader regional war. What can we do to enhance diplomatic conversations? A potential ceasefire. Israel, of course, has been going back and forth with Hamas over releasing the hostages. Hamas wants a permanent ceasefire. Israel continues to refuse. We'll see how this all plays out. But in the meantime, the United States obviously has more power than the Biden administration is willing to admit. Considering how much in military funding we provide to Israel, how much of our military weaponry we ship over to Israel to support their war efforts in Gaza. I would venture to say the United States has more power than they're leading us to believe in pressuring Israel to rein in what they're doing in Gaza. At the very least, rein it in. But you know, the finger wagging from the Biden administration is not enough. There needs to be actual moves made behind the rhetoric of wanting Israel to protect civilian lives. Those consequences should include refusing to send any more military aid. But we haven't seen the Biden administration show any willingness to do that. And so as a result, I believe that tensions will continue to flare. I think the situation will continue to devolve in the Middle East. And at the end of the day, the individuals who will pay for it are typically, as always, innocent civilians and the tax paying citizens who end up funding these wars that go on for years on end. Anyway, we have to take a break. When we come back, Cenk Uger will join me for an interview on his presidential run. Don't miss it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back to TYT, I'm your host Anna Kasparian and joining us now is Cenk Uger, who's currently running in the Democratic primary for President of the United States. So Cenk, it's been a while since we've talked and yep. I'm sure there's lots of updates. So it seems less and less likely that you know your primary run is gonna go anywhere. So what are your plans? Are you gonna yeah. stay in the race? So. Uh- I think that your analysis is fair. Mm-hmm. And so let, let me explain what's happened since and then I talk about what's the most important, which is what we're gonna do next, mm-hmm. right? So in terms of what's happened, two main things. One is unfortunately our case in South Carolina was not expedited. That sounds like a minor thing, but it isn't. Mm-hmm. So when a case is not expedited, that means that it will not be decided before the election in South Carolina. 
which then likely means that the court will rule it moot afterwards. So they put you in a catch 22 you can't get out of. So they're like, we're not gonna hear your case until it's irrelevant mm -hmm. and then we'll declare it irrelevant. So is that another injustice? Of course it is, but that's normal. Right? Did they give a reason? No, they did not give a reason. And so, uh, so do we have enough money to sue in another state? I'm gonna be honest with you guys, no, we don't. I wish I had a lot more money. We raised way more money for the congressional run. And I get why, because people thought I could win that one, but they think they I can't win this one. I totally get it, mm -hmm. right? So then the second thing happened is New Hampshire. And so New Hampshire, we were not allowed on the ballot, we weren't competing. So I didn't, like the results are obvious and that's not an issue. We didn't even try there, that's okay. So I wasn't worried about that, but I will tell you the day after, or that night when I saw Vermin Supreme being interviewed and he's got the boot on his head. And I know he's a performance artist and he doesn't mean anything, any harm. He's trying to actually send a decent message out, etc. But I thought that brother made it onto the ballot. Mm -hmm. That's this country saying he's okay. Mm -hmm. He at least could lead us. You, you don't even have a boot on your head. You're no good naturalized citizen, we don't trust you. We potentially trust Vermin, but we don't trust you. You're not even allowed in the race. And that bummed me out, mm -hmm. okay? But this, but then there came the silver lining, because you know me, Anna, I'm an eternal optimist, and I always try to look for, okay, yes, but what are we gonna do next that's positive, mm -hmm. that gives people hope, right? So I realized, oh my God, I'm on the presidential ballot in seven different states. And you know, I was mad that they stopped including me in the polls, right? Like Quinnipiac had me in a poll, I got to 2%. Mm -hmm. That was actually the first poll they did with me in it. That's the equivalent of 1.6 million Democratic voters saying, yeah, I want that guy to be president of the United States. Mm -hmm. And that's humbling and wonderful, etc. So I thought, yeah, but even if they're not including me in the polls now, so what? The election is the ultimate poll. And I'm on the ballot in Vermont, I'm on the ballot in Texas, Oklahoma, and a whole bunch of Super Tuesday states. Mm -hmm. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna turn my campaign into a message campaign. Now, I'm super realistic about it, both in terms of the potential for winning, which is tiny at this point, right? And but and also even the idea of getting a message out, that's also very difficult, right? For example, they tried to write in ceasefire in New Hampshire, and it got a lot of votes, and I and I got a lot of votes, and then they didn't report it. They just put, said ten thousand votes that were written in, but we're not going to tell you who they were. Total. Total. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's possible that I came in third. It's possible ceasefire came in third, mm -hmm. right? But it's unreported. But I'm like, you can't not report it on the states that I'm in. So. Now, I'm gonna try to do something audacious as I always do, which is to try to win Vermont. Okay. Like I'm not unrealistic, Texas is a giant state. <laughs> in five weeks, we are not going to be able to get our message out effectively enough, especially with mainstream media stonewalling me that I'm gonna win Texas, that's crazy. On the other hand, Vermont is smaller than a congressional district. It's the home of progressives. Does Vermont want to send a message and the war and the occupation? Now, if I won, no one would dispute that that would be stunning mm -hmm. and the message will have been delivered, right? And so at that point, Biden's gotta be thinking, well, how much longer do I wanna go with the war if I just heard this resounding message, stop the war, stop the occupation? So that's point one, mm -hmm. there's a second point too, but that alone would be worth it. There's actually two more points as to why I'm continuing. But again, if people say, hey, you know, your chances are totally unrealistic now, so I don't wanna give my hard earned money, 25 bucks, five bucks, whatever it is, 
I totally get it, guys. I'm the only candidate that'll ever say that, right? But if you want to help send that message and you want to take advantage of this unique opportunity where one of us is on the ballot in seven different states and we could use that as an opportunity to send a message, that would be amazing. When is the last primary for the state that you're on the ballot for? So it's it's later in the process. Mm -hmm. I'm not looking past Super Tuesday. So okay. like, let's go to Super Tuesday. And Anna, it's not just about winning Vermont. Uh, any delegate is a delegate for peace. And mm -hmm. any state where you get about 15%. Now in Michigan, you have to do a write-in, so that's very difficult. On the other hand, Michigan is filled with voters who agree with me. Right. So if I get to 15% in Michigan or any other state, I get delegates. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you experienced when you visited Dearborn recently? Yeah, yeah. So, so I, of course, I met with Muslim and Arab leaders, but more importantly, just citizens, mm -hmm. right? And they're livid. They, they have, they're done with Biden. Mm -hmm. There is. It, my sense was nothing on earth could move them to vote for Joe Biden. Yeah, the Washington Post actually came out with a piece today that's fascinating and I, I wanna talk about it on the show tomorrow. But uh, there is a growing movement among Arabs and Muslims in Michigan where it, it's now an organized movement to vote against Biden. Well, good opportunity for them, right in Jank Uger. Yeah, <laughs> okay. I mean, that's a possibility. That's your first, that's your first yeah. vote against Biden. And by the way, that's the beauty of doing this within the primaries mm -hmm. because it doesn't hurt against Trump in the general election at all, at all. Like the idea that they always say, "Oh, you're taking votes away from Biden, not in a primary. Right. Right, in primary, you're just sending a message, especially given the fact that it is enormously likely that Biden's going to win, then you don't have to worry about it at all. All you're doing is sending a message saying, I don't like this war, I don't wanna fund it, I don't wanna fund the occupation. Let's be decent and humane and moral and stand up for what's right, especially as Democratic voters and especially in Michigan. Right. So help me, look, I do town halls every Wednesday, I'm gonna do one later today, mm -hmm. right, tonight. And I get supporters and stuff and I go, let's go, let's figure this out together. And they come up with good suggestions too. And let's go figure out a way to get our message out in Michigan to write me in and to vote for me in Vermont, Texas, Oklahoma, and the other states on, on Super Tuesday that I'm on the ballot. Okay, great. Um, so tell us a little bit about uh, another town hall that you're gonna be having soon. So that's the one tonight. Oh, that is tonight. Okay. Yeah, so so look, we, we can put up the QR code there. I think you guys have it, there yep. it is. And it's always on uh, under events on jankforamerica.com. So go to events on jankforamerica.com. You'll always see my upcoming town hall, okay? And, and wherever I'm going, I'm gonna be going to Vermont soon. I'm gonna speak at Bennington and other colleges, yeah. etc. okay? So, but one of the things I wanna explain is that every delegate that I get is a delegate for peace. Mm -hmm. And so we get to go to the convention. Imagine if I have delegates. Now, that's again, guys, I'm the most realistic guy. So I'm not telling you, oh, we get 10 delegates or 200 delegates, that's it, we're gonna stop the war. But it does get press attention. Here is, and it does two things. One, it would be the first time a naturalized citizen got a delegate for president. That would be historic and amazing, and you could make that happen. And we definitely still need funds to make that happen. If you're interested in that, jankforamerica.com. But then I go get to go to the DNC and go, here's my delegates that are for peace and make our stand. Some progressive Democrats uh, who purport to want a ceasefire, they want peace, 
And um, several of them are actually members of Justice Democrats or they got elected through the Justice Democrats platform. And uh, obviously you're the co-founder of Justice Democrats and you did a lot of work to help support them in their electoral efforts. I'm curious if anyone has come out in support of what you're doing, um, either rhetorically behind the scenes or publicly. No, none. Interesting, why do you think that is? Um, well, look, it, to be fair to them, they probably think it's unrealistic, and I get that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to be unfair to them, they think opposing Biden is uh, heresy and that they would be yelled at in Washington. And I know they get yelled at for good reasons, like, you know, the, they, they do a, a lot of them fight for the Palestinians in Congress, and I deeply appreciate that, right? But they have a line, and the line is you cannot cross the establishment. If you do, uh, the media will be very mean to you. So the idea of supporting a message candidate to end the war in Gaza, I don't think it's even occurred to them. That's interesting. So what was the objective of Justice Democrats in the first place? The challenge establishment. Okay, that's all I wanted to know. Okay, yeah. that's fair. <laughs> all right, now look, there's other things we can do. Okay, yeah. so I'm gonna tell you one small one, then one big one. So uh, given this opportunity, I'm never gonna get to have again of being on a presidential ballot. Um, what I think is, well, why not tell everybody all the things that we care about and all the amazing things that would happen if you elected a strong progressive. Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna talk to uh, people about ending corruption and ending uh, the uh, how the politicians are hooked on donor money. For our audience, that might be obvious, but when you get into other forms of media, there nobody ever talks about that, ever, ever, right? They don't talk about it in right-wing media, they don't talk about it in mainstream media, they don't talk about it even mostly in the online media, mm-hmm. right? We're the one show that's obsessed with it. Some other shows, shows mention it from time to time, but no one ever does a campaign. So look, and then all the progressive policies we have, paid family leave, minimum wage, you've heard me talk about a lot. Why not take this opportunity to say, yes, I'm also in favor of this. Wouldn't it be amazing if we had a Democratic candidate that fought for all of this? Okay, but this the third one is also huge, which is, and this is, I get that it's funny guys, I get that I don't have the power to do this, okay? But I have appointed myself mm-hmm. the Trump czar of the Democratic Party. That'll be great. Okay, <laughs> so now what does that mean? Well, look, why did I get in the race in the first place? Number one objective was to push Biden out so we could actually beat Trump. Mm-hmm. And, and you, I'm most honest <laughs> politician you'll ever meet, right? We didn't do that, we couldn't do it. We couldn't get the governors into the race to push him out and we couldn't get him to leave on his own accord so that we could actually beat Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. So we're gonna limp into this general election with a wounded antelope and there's nothing I could do about it. I tried and tried. And guys, part of what I'm doing here is get caught trying, right? So I'm leading by example here. And even if, oh my God, you didn't do well here and you didn't do well there and ha ha, you only got 2%, etc. I'll take all of it, I'll take it, and you can hit me on it, I don't mind. As long as we're trying to do something positive in the world. And I cannot, and overall for progressives and for the country and for Democratic voters, we've got to get to 2028. If we get to 2028, then I think we're gonna be in good shape. And we've gotta build towards that. But if you wanna get to 2028, you can't have Donald Trump win. What do you mean by we have to get to 2028, what does that mean? That means that once this campaign is over, we have to find a candidate and build around them. It takes a long, long time. Mm -hmm. I now have tremendous personal experience in running a presidential campaign and knowing what it takes, what the challenges are for a normal candidate, etc. And how do we build towards that? Mm -hmm. So we have, because we have to give people hope. 
So when you look at Biden and Trump and you look, well, okay, for example, on Gaza, well, Biden would keep killing them and Trump would keep killing them. There's no hope. Biden would continue the corruption, Trump would continue the corruption. There's no hope. Biden won't do paid family leave, Trump won't do paid family. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So that means we need our own candidate and hopefully someone who's got less hurdles than me. Mm -hmm. And we have to prepare well in advance to win in 2028. Because there's the guys, I love you, but and I don't want to give you, but I never want to give you false hope. There's, there's even if Biden wins, the idea that he's magically going to do all these progressive policies no, is a pipe dream. No, no, it's over. It's like, pipe dream, no, no. right? The, the, the window for progressive policies has been squandered. So like, let's just be realistic about that. Yes, okay. so we have to rebuild, we okay. have to rebuild. Yeah. And that sucks, but I'm honest with you and I'm real with you. We gotta rebuild towards 2028. But what I'm worried about and why I got in the race in the first place, because I'm worried if Trump wins, there is no 2028. So it's not like, oh yeah, you think Biden's gonna be an angel? No, do you think Biden's gonna be 2000 times better than Trump? I don't know, right? <laughs> but I do know that if Biden wins, or even if Nikki Haley wins, and I despise Nikki Haley, mm -hmm. we're gonna have an election in 2028. The only person I'm not sure we're gonna have an election in 2028 is the one that tried to stop democracy earlier, and that's Donald Trump. So uh, I bought spoileddonny.com. You love the URLs. I do, and it redirects <laughs> to my site. I bought trumpthebetrayer.com, oh <laughs> and that redirects to my site. And so what am I gonna do here? I'm gonna lead by example as I do, which mm -hmm. is to show Biden and the other Democrats how you fight Trump. You don't fight him by constantly saying racist, sexist, xenophobe, etc. Everybody already knows that, okay? And for a lot of voters, unfortunately, that's not the bug, that's the feature. But for a lot of voters that are half of MAGA or Republicans and almost all independents, mm -hmm. they don't, like they're voting for him despite that, right? And so for those folks, they already got the message. What you have to give them is two other messages. One is Donald Trump is incredibly weak. He's an insecure little baby. And the minute you trigger him, he does something stupid. And we cannot afford that when he's president of the United States. And this little baby got $413 million handed to him by his daddy. And then he blew it all. He went bankrupt six different times. So I'm gonna point out in a thousand different ways, what a loser this guy is. Total imbecile, clown of the earth, okay? We cannot risk this guy again. Uh, and, and that's, by the way, also why he tried to end democracy. I lost the election, I don't want to lose the election, you took my toy away, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm gonna kick his ass on that. And on the second point on the betrayer, it's not about betraying America, although he did that too. It's about he betrays the people who trusted him the most. Mm -hmm. So the Jeff Sessions and everyone who's ever worked for him, everyone who's ever invested in him, anybody who went to Trump University, Trump Charity, what did he do? He betrayed every single person who's ever trusted him. So what I'm gonna tell independents and half of Republicans is, guys, what do you think he's gonna do to you? You trust him more than anyone else, you're the mark. He's a con man, he tries to gain your confidence and then betray it, yep. that's his MO. And if you and if people really understand that, it's one thing to say, yeah, he hates other people, but I ain't other people. It's another thing to think, oh, he's gonna betray me. Mm -hmm. Okay. M maybe that changes the dynamic. Look, <laughs> I'm not the guy who comes in and goes, that's it. Now that I'm the Trump czar, Trump's done. We win automatically. But is it better to have one person in the Democratic race who's trying to take Trump's head off politically and rhetorically than having zero? Yeah, right? Biden doesn't know how to fight him at all and barely even does. 
Anytime he gives one speech a year against Trump, people are like, whoa, look at Biden giving one speech against Trump. No, I'm gonna go after him 100%. So when it comes to the voting, that's about sending a message to the Democratic Party. And as I'm running, I'm gonna pummel Trump to the best of my abilities. All right, everyone learn more about what Jenk is doing over at jenkforamerica.com. Jenk, thank you for giving us these updates and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you, it's a golden opportunity. I don't know when we're gonna be on the ballot next. Let's go get them, let's send a message together. Thank you, Anna. No problem, all right, we'll be right back. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to TYT. All right, this next segment has some stories that are unfortunate to say the least. They deal with the migrant crisis and how it's impacting New York. And then a little later, we'll talk about an argument recently made in the New York Times about how San Francisco's approach to drug addiction is actually leading to a culture that increases the likelihood of addiction. So we'll get to that a little later. But first, I wanna start with this. You are watching surveillance footage showing five asylum seekers who viciously attacked police officers in New York's Times Square as the cops were attempting to detain another man. Now the assault happened last Saturday when police attempted to disperse a disorderly group of people. ABC News reports that when officers attempted to place an individual in custody, the suspects began to kick and punch the officers and then they fled the scene and you know, you can see all of that taking place in the surveillance footage that we just showed you. Now, luckily, no one was seriously injured, and the police were treated on the scene for minor injuries, including one person who had, you know, some cuts to his face. The suspects, luckily, were later arrested. The suspects were identified Wednesday as Yorman Reveron, 24 years old, Darwin Andres Gomez. Iskiel, 19 years old, Wilson Jarez, 21, Kelvin Arocha, 19, and then Joan Boada, 22 years old. So they face some charges, including assault on a police officer, disorderly conduct, and gang assault. Now, it is being widely reported now by local news outlets in New York that the individuals who carried out these assaults are actually asylum seekers. The assault took place in front of a migrant shelter. And there have been increasing scuffles with migrants between one another for the most part. But this is the first time that we're seeing surveillance footage of them literally attacking cops and being kind of brazen and emboldened enough to do something like that. One of them already had a criminal criminal record, Reveron has two pending cases in Manhattan for assault and robbery. He allegedly attacked a loss prevention officer at a Macy's department store during an alleged robbery and also allegedly punched and bit a Nordstrom Rack employee in November. Um, I don't wanna get ahead of myself here. Because I have a whole argument that I'm about to make, but let me just say this. Considering the lack of resources for migrants, considering the fact that you have a situation in which there isn't enough shelter and you have migrants sleeping outside. Can we deport the migrants who are engaging in this kind of behavior and this kind of crime? Like one of them has already gotten arrested twice 
for assaulting employees at retail stores. And then you have the surveillance footage of them kicking cops in the head as the cops are trying to detain another guy. Why, what are we doing? So they get arrested and then they're let out, no bail because it's New York City, of course. Okay, this is, listen, I know we have a giant left wing audience and I love you guys. Please don't give in to some knee jerk reaction to provide cover for these people. These are not people you need to provide cover for. These are people who are in the country claiming asylum. They don't have a right to be here. It is a privilege to be able to take advantage of our asylum program and be able to claim asylum, claim that you're here because of whatever reason. I don't know exactly which reason they gave for their asylum claim. And you get to have your case adjudicated in front of a judge. But if you're causing all sorts of chaos, and if you're assaulting police officers, like the idea that we're not even having a conversation about immediately deporting them is ridiculous. But then not only that, they get arrested and immediately released without bail because of bail reform in New York. That's insane, right? Am I crazy? I don't know. I feel like I've lost my mind at this point. I feel like I'm gonna get like an onslaught of ridiculous harassment because I think people seeking asylum and taking up finite resources that could be given to another asylum seeker who isn't causing problems, it's ridiculous. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office says that an investigation into the incident is ongoing. We now have additional video surveillance that was not available at the time of arraignment and are continuing to speak to witnesses in order to determine the specific role of each defendant. And by the way, I wanna be clear about something. If you are part of the left and you don't speak out against incidents like that. What it does is it allows for the right to paint a picture of what all asylum seekers are like, what all migrants are like. And as we know, based on studies that have been conducted previously, there's no indication that immigrant communities have a higher rate of crime. Okay, anyone who claims that they do, it's just unfounded. There's no evidence of that. But if the left starts providing cover, for migrants who do commit crime and feel emboldened enough to literally assault police officers as they're trying to detain someone else, that sends a really bad message about what the left wants to represent. And it also allows for, in my opinion, the defamation of migrants who are here who have legitimate asylum claims and should not be treated any differently from ordinary people, especially considering how vulnerable they are and how they're here either for safety or for opportunity. So this should not paint a picture of asylum seekers. But for those who cause these kinds of problems, there should be consequences and they should be deported immediately. So at least 41 people have been arrested at the Roosevelt Hotel since May. The Roosevelt Hotel in New York City has been used for migrant shelters and Apparently, they've had 41 people who have been arrested. Most of those cases involve domestic violence. An asylum seeker was accused of bashing an employee in the head with a no parking sign in June after the worker basically kicked him out of the building for being unruly. The worker ended up with a six inch gash on his head and Mayor Eric Adams made an unannounced visit to the hotel within days to basically survey the situation. A 30 year old migrant at the Manhattan Hotel turned shelter was also arrested for alleged child endangerment. 
Um, his alleged victim was an 11 year old daughter and that's according to uh, police reports on the matter. And the Manhattan District Attorney's Office later declined to prosecute because prosecuting people is tough. You need to actually prove your case. And if it's not an open and shut case, they just drop it. So a spokesperson for the Manhattan DA's office says, after thorough investigation and review of the facts, the people decline to prosecute this matter. If a crime cannot be proven beyond a reasonable doubt, it is our ethical duty not to charge it. It seems like they believe it's their ethical duty not to charge anyone with anything. So we'll see how it plays out for the people who were caught in that surveillance footage beating the crap out of those cops. But anyone who thinks like, oh, who cares? We don't like cops, so let them do whatever they want. You're ridiculous, okay, you're ridiculous. Not all of us have the resources as Cori Bush did to hire private security and feel safe. Ordinary citizens have their tax money sent to local police departments for protection to keep the community safe. So if you have a situation in which police are getting the message that they can be assaulted like that. And then right after their book, they're just released without bail. I don't know, I feel like it's gonna, it's gonna harm recruitment efforts in a situation where we already have a shortage of police officers. So when you call the cops because you need them and they're unable to come because there is that shortage, don't complain about it if you provided cover for the kind of behavior we saw in that surveillance footage. But aside from that, if these guys are comfortable enough to openly, publicly, in broad daylight, beat the crap out of police officers. What do you think they're willing to do to ordinary people? We already know one of them had no problem beating up <laughs> or assaulting retail workers. So what kind of other damage are they gonna do to other members of that community? No, we gotta speak out against this stuff and we have to speak out against it loudly. We have to be clear that they're not representative of immigrants and migrants. But we also have to be clear that we on the left denounce and condemn this kind of behavior and want consequences for it. And if you don't, just think about what kind of message that sends to the general public about what the priorities and actual values of the left happen to be. All right, let's move on. I wanted to talk a little bit about honestly a city that has stood out from the rest in this terrible tragic time where we're experiencing an increased number of overdose deaths. They're happening across the country, but San Francisco really does stand out. So let's discuss. There's evidence of drug use everywhere. They go one has been used, two, three, these are pulled out of needles. As we were filming, a woman approached us. Do you guys know where we can get any free tents at around here? Mm, free tents? Beth and her partner Jay have been in San Francisco for a year. So are you doing fentanyl like like today or? Every day. Every day, yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. What's it like living here? Uh, lawless. Yes. Yeah. Completely lawless. Yeah. This is anarchy. At a time when the country is still struggling with an increasing number of overdose deaths, unfortunately, the situation is even worse in the city of San Francisco. And the real question is, what is it that San Francisco is doing that makes that particular city experience a disproportionate number of overdose deaths year after year? 
Now the numbers are pretty jarring. Let's take a look at this graph that was reported by the New York Times. And what they note is that, well, you can see that blue line, it's San Francisco. It compares San Francisco to the national average of drug overdose deaths last year in 2023. And what they found was that in 2018, San Francisco's overdose death rate roughly matched the national average. But last year, the death rate was more than double the national average. San Francisco was number four for overdose deaths among US counties with more than 500,000 people. So German Lopez, who's one of the reporters at the New York Times, argues in a new piece that San Francisco's liberal mindset toward addiction uh, which emphasizes harm reduction and kind of moves away from recovery and rehabilitation might be to blame for San Francisco's disproportionate rate of overdose deaths. Now to be clear, Lopez does not at all advocate for uh, a tough on crime uh, drug war approach, quite the opposite. In fact, he does what I was hoping I would see in a piece like this. He compared the harm reduction approach that we've you know, started doing in certain cities like San Francisco to the decriminalization effort in Portugal. And this is something that I've actually talked on the show about before. Because while we wanted to model the harm reduction policies here in the United States to that of Portugal, we actually didn't get it quite right. There are certain cultural differences that have been used there that we are not using here. And that's really what German Lopez is trying to focus on in this piece. And I think it's really, really worth a read. I'm gonna highlight the relevant parts in this coverage right now, but I definitely think you should all read it. We'll include a link in the description box so you can read it for yourselves. So he begins by talking about some changes in state law. And one of the big changes that he references is a ballot measure from 2014 that California voters passed. It was known as Prop 47 and what it did is it reduced drug possession to a misdemeanor rather than a felony. It was all an effort to kind of decriminalize drug use. Now in San Francisco, law enforcement has basically responded by scaling back efforts against drugs, de-emphasizing incarceration, which I think makes sense, and effectively allowing public drug use, which I do not think makes sense. So let me explain what I mean. Activists in San Francisco now refer to body autonomy, arguing that people have the right to put whatever they choose into their veins and lungs, writes German Lopez. They no longer want to hate the sin. They say it's no one's business, but the drug users. But when the drugs are being consumed openly and publicly, whether it's on public transportation or on the sidewalk, it doesn't merely impact the life of the drug user, it impacts everyone in that community. And what's really interesting is if you compare what the policies in San Francisco are to hard drugs like meth or fentanyl, compare that to, well, what we've done throughout the country in response to tobacco use. You can't smoke cigarettes wherever you want. And with these policies making it more and more difficult to smoke cigarettes, and with a public campaign urging people and pushing people away from cigarettes, we've succeeded in severely decreasing the number of people who smoke cigarettes. 
But that's not what's happening, culturally speaking, in places like San Francisco, and that's what Lopez is talking about. So he provides specific examples of what he feels is the wrong direction, culturally speaking, in response to the opioid epidemic and the overdose epidemic that we're seeing. In early 2020, an advocacy group put up a billboard downtown to promote the use of naloxone, an overdose anecdote. It showed happy young people seeming to enjoy a high together. No overdose, the billboard said, use with people and take turns. Here, drug use wasn't dangerous as long as users had someone to check on them while high. So when you start taking the taboo away from something, it subconsciously messages to people in general that like, Doing this and doing it openly is totally fine, right? It almost like minimizes the harm that you're doing to yourself and to the community by by using these types of drugs. And again, there's a shift away from you know pushing people toward rehabilitation and instead helping them maintain their drug addiction without getting clean, with the intention to keep them alive, of course, and that is important. But when you don't have the second half of kind of nudging them toward rehabilitation, I think that you do have a recipe for disaster and we are experiencing that. For instance, this guy named Michael Disapola, who's the director of health access at the program Glide, said that his organization wants people to use drugs more safely. Abstinence is not always the correct goal, he argued. When one client declared that he wanted to quit drugs, Disapola explained that Glide suggested more realistic goals. Oh, let's just, if someone is seeking to get clean, if they want to be sober, every effort should be made to help that individual reach that goal. Discouraging them for, for, from doing that is insane, right? I mean, that is insane, right? What makes this even worse is the allergy these groups have, like toward nudging addicts to treatment and recovery. In San Francisco, harm reduction programs such as Glide do not require staff to guide people toward treatment. They argue that such pushiness could scare away clients who are not interested in quitting drugs. The situation has been bad in San Francisco for years now. Obviously, these policies and this mindset did not bode well for people in San Francisco and the people struggling with addiction in San Francisco. And even though they have failed in their approach year after year, they're still spewing this nonsense. Oh, We don't want to be pushy. You know, in Portugal, even though they decriminalize drugs, they're pretty damn pushy. They push people toward treatment and recovery. That is the big difference between what we've done in the United States versus what they do in Portugal. Portugal's decriminalization model worked because of that second half that we have completely ignored because we don't want to be pushy. We don't want to shame people. Now, let's get deeper into that conversation about the United States versus Portugal. So Portugal has widely adopted some harm reduction measures such as needle exchanges. But the government made getting people into treatment its top priority, its number one priority, particularly through something known as dissuasion commissions. We don't have dissuasion commissions. We don't want to be too pushy, but in Portugal, that is what they have. So when people are cited for drugs, because it is regulated to some extent, you can't just do what's been happening on the streets of San Francisco. You can't just publicly use 
you know, fentanyl, you can't smoke meth. Like if you're seen doing that, you will be cited. So when people are cited for drugs, they are sent to so-called dissuasion commissions. The commissions talk with people using techniques like motivational interviewing to persuade them to stop using drugs and seek help. But the commissions also have the threat of penalties, including community service and the revocation of a, pers a professional license to more forcefully push someone into treatment if persuasion fails. There's a little bit of muscle involved according to the architect of Portugal's system. That is what he said. And again, if you wanna celebrate Portugal's model and you wanna implement Portugal's model here in the United States, well, then you need to implement their actual model here in the United States. That's not what's happening in some cities, including San Francisco. So let's talk about treatment versus harm prevention or harm reduction. Portugal invested in addiction treatment and created a system that tries to push people to seek help for addiction. Decriminalization by itself means nothing if you have nothing else to offer. Again, that was another statement from the architect of Portugal's drug decriminalization program. And I think he's absolutely right about that. Rehabilitation, treatment centers, all of that stuff, really, really expensive. And unfortunately, we have a fragmented system here where people who seek to get clean, people who wanna be sober are not able to do so because they don't have the necessary resources to afford the rehabilitative treatments that are offered or available. So San Francisco, California and the federal government fund addiction treatment, but the system, as I mentioned, is fragmented. Some providers offer medications for opioid addiction, Others reject medications as just replacing one drug for another, so they don't offer that. Some treatment is effectively free or paid for by insurance, but other services do charge and they charge patients a lot, thousands of dollars in some cases. As a result, patients frequently struggle to find a treatment option that both works for them and one that they can afford. So San Francisco also has trouble nudging people into treatment. In some cases, the city offers drug users the option of treatment as an alternative to jail or prison. But this is available only when an addict is charged with more serious crimes like robbery that carry jail or prison time. Drug use alone is not enough. One program started by the city last year offers people treatment after they are charged with drug use or sales. But if the users refuse treatment, they are typically released anyway. And so when they are given that option, that is a good opportunity to nudge them toward recovery, right? But it's not gonna work if you don't make the recovery mandatory after they choose recovery over time behind bars. And that's the other issue that's been coming up over and over again. But it is an interesting piece. And when you see how badly the city of San Francisco has failed you know, their, their citizens, their local community, they need to recalibrate and, and figure out what it is they need to tweak to get people the help they need. Because what they're doing now is leading to more and more deaths, more and more pain, more and more suffering. And this ain't the Portugal model that some would have you believe it is. All right, we gotta take a break. When we come back, John Iderolo will join me for the second hour.